Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin here again. And uh, this week's episode is with one of my good friends, Peter Hook from um, New Order and Joy Division and many other bands. He's a producer, he's an artist, he's a, what's they say, singer, songwriter, composer, multi-instrumentalist and record producer. And is uh, also one of the, simply put, one of the nicest and most entertaining and charismatic people that you're ever, ever likely to meet. Um, he invented a style of bass playing, which I think people underestimate him for, um, musically. Um, it's, got, it's kind of just a variant on punk, is, is what people generally would categorise it as. But do you know what? It's very melodic and present in any particular mix that you you know it's a it's is a large part of the character of the bands that he's been in and uh having performed with him live with british electric foundation i can honestly say he's one of the most impressive live performers um i mean he'd be the first to admit he doesn't have the world's greatest uh and most ver- most versatile voice but his his performance on stage, his stagecraft, is second to none. Um, I watched him command an audience of 18,000 people when we were playing Rewind. And he had them in the palm of his hands, you know. I mean, Glenn's not shed too shabby either, by the way. I'm not knocking that. But honestly, I was so impressed and still am impressed every time he performs with us. Um... This interview <laughs> is uh, probably, I mean, I'd say in terms of laughs per, per minute, it's probably uh, the best interview that I've done. Um, he's a hilarious guy and his stories about um, Manchester and Hacienda and Factory and stuff are priceless, really. And I've read his, I've read his uh, autobiography, latest autobiography. So he's just a very entertaining guy, you know. He's he's the sort of person who you, you know you'd want to bump into in any given room or pub, um, and you know is a soul soulful kind of character as well. So I'm not I'm not uh, decrying him uh, for being kind of he's just a kind of fancy punk. Not at all. He's a um, profound guy. And uh, I love him to death. And here he is. The one, the only, Peter Hook. Hey, there he is. Hey, up. Young man. Young man, that's delightful to hear. Young man, young man, young oh, man. You look like you're in a submarine. It's my studio. It's good, actually. Oh, it's beautiful, yeah. Yeah, it's a lovely studio. It's like an old-style studio. No windows, no clocks. That's no it. Windows. I think there could be anything going on out there I wouldn't know about. <laughs> Where are you? I'm at home. You can tell by the pictures of the kids. <laughs> what, the skull one, you mean? The what? The skull. Yeah, no. <laughs> the kids are elsewhere. Yeah. How yeah. are you, mate? I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, up and down like everybody, you know. 
It's been an absolute bastard nightmare, hasn't it? I suppose. Oh, uh, you're allowed to swear on this podcast, by the oh, way. Oh, we can swear, can we? Oh, yeah. No, if I, encourage, I actively encourage it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, what have you been up to during lockdown then? What have I been up to? You know what? It's, it's been such a long time now. Because I, I finished work in November 19 to get the memorabilia ready for the new order auction. Right. So I had a few months off before we were going to start again. And we right. were going to start again in February right. 2020. So I did everything I wanted to do. I had my time off, Did uh, got all the memorabilia you know, all listed and photographed and all that crap. And then, of course, it was February when everything shut down. Everything got pulled. And it's, and weirdly, it's sort of gone in, you know, quite quickly. Yeah. But slowly at the same time. Ty- temporal distortion, yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you know what? It, it, it's like I'm not the first that, that said it. But it's like after 30-odd years, nearly 40 years of chasing our tails, <laughs> it was actually, there was so much shit that I kept putting off and I'd been putting off for 39 years mm. um, that I actually got to do a lot of stuff. You know, it's like somebody gave you the best excuse in the world or sort of gave everybody else the best excuse in the world for you to do things that you've been putting off for years. Yeah, we're... Um... I mean, obviously, we're from similar stock, um, and built into you is this. Oh God, it's like a it, it, it's a work. I suppose you call it a work ethic, but it's like really, it's a compulsion to carry on working at all times. And I liken it to I'm not, you know I've talked to various American artists and came from very uh, you know kind of poor backgrounds and especially black artists, and it's just like. This survival mechanism, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's quite odd in a way, isn't it? Because it's like a mixture of survivor's guilt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you're still here and so many aren't. That's right. And you can't turn anything down because of that. Uh, the other thing is, is that when we started, and I'm sure you were exactly the same, you couldn't get a bloody gig to save your life. You know, True. well, we we could get gigs, but they they didn't pay anything. Yeah, that's what I mean. So the thing yeah. is that then you get a modicum of success. And uh, me and Clint Boom were having this very interesting conversation because he said that, you know, like a lot of people, the time off has given him a different perspective. Yeah. Now, I mean, he was terrible. He would attend the opening of an envelope, (laughs) just like me, and he would do anything for whoever asked him, wherever it was, whoever it was, however much it was, he just could not turn anything down. Mm. And... He has had a complete reawakening, you know, wow. after being at home with the kids and the missus and finding other ways to survive. Um, so, and he's gone the opposite way now, he's turning loads of stuff down. And I said, But I said, there's something you're missing though, surely. And he said, Yeah. And he said, But I'm not sure what it is. And I went, I know what it is. It's the affirmation that getting to an audience and playing yeah. to an audience gives you yeah. it gives yeah. you your reason That's in a it. weird way for being there doesn't it it's a, it's um you know we all like to think that we're quite i mean me and you are quite similar characters in a lot of ways 
we're not particularly bigging ourselves up all the time. It's not really the done thing to do that. But very northern. on the other side of the coin, you want to get that approbation back, don't you? Well, do you know what? I think the thing is, is that in, in, in an odd way, what we do is difficult. Yeah, we know that. It's difficult for many reasons, mm. you know, whether it's the climate, the culture, um, how, how the sort of thing that you take for granted, getting a music review together like yours. You know, yeah. BF. Yeah, BF I mean, thing. that is that is it's a tough gig. It, it you know, is, and many people would look at it and go, "Are you mad?" I mean, one <laughs> lead singer is bad enough, as we all know, <laughs> right? To get eight <laughs> or whatever, you must we you must be insane. I, and to get them to keep the the shirts on at the end of their numbers is <laughs> well. very tough. Thank God you're a man. That's all I can say. Yeah, you'll be pleased to hear that um, uh, I, I have cross addicted again into staying fit. So uh, if we ever yeah. do get another gig, mate, I will be. Yeah, you're looking good, man. You, you look like you've lost a bit of weight. Yeah, you so, look yeah, healthy. It's, yeah, it's funny. I managed to uh, because I've I've got um, uh, I've got pneumonic scarring. Have you? My lungs through. I mean, I got pneumonia three times in a row once. Shit. You know, flying and flying long distances. I don't know. I mean, I was able to, because I was pretty fit, uh, the doctor said, you know, you, you were able to not suffer from it that much physically, apart from like, you know, your throat, funnily enough. But he said um, it has left scars. So I've got to be careful and I've got asthma. So I, I do, I was careful. Uh, early as soon as yeah. it started i was i was very careful and i, I got myself a jogging machine ah. i heard one and uh, i've been running like fucking forest Cump, uh, <laughs> as my <laughs> wife says and i mean it actually got ridiculous at one point uh. i was actually up to like 14k get off yeah running for literally an hour and a half without stopping and madness oh man I, I didn't have to do me knees in. yeah it's not good for your knees all that shit well <laughs> you, you you do have to be careful but yeah i mean it's it's one of those things that i've, I've managed to probably stay brighter because i've been have fit. you have yeah. you i've been i've been up and down like a bride's nighty well i mean it that happens you know every time you lose someone yeah and uh, bloody hell i'll tell you what that in 2020 i lost a few yeah. And of course, you couldn't go to any funerals. No. There was a few family members that were suffering. I mean, it was all a freaking oh, nightmare. I lost my brother at Christmas. Oh, you're joking. Yeah. Oh, I'm man, I'm so sorry. Now. It was, it was qu quite unbelievable. I mean, it, it was all really last minute as well, so I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to him or anything. Terrible, isn't it? Uh, uh, anyway. It broke my heart because... You know, part of the ritual thing is you want to say you, you yeah, want to have yeah. a wake, don't yeah. you? And all you couldn't even do that. It's a big part know. of life. It really is a big part of life of paying your respects, yeah. and being able to in many. That's, un, that's unresolved. Yeah, and, well, uh, and, 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 everything and about this bloody illness leaves everything unresolved, doesn't it? And, uh, I know. Mean, yeah. we're, anyway, we're out today. Yeah. And in Nutsford, which is one of our favourite places to go, and we go and walk the dogs and, you know, have a coffee and all that crap. And, oh, my God, the amount of property to let. Really? Yeah, everyone's gone bump. You know, have they? You're just looking down the high street and going, oh, my God, you know. And these scars 
really have yet to come, don't they? I mean, oh, it'll, it'll get worse before it gets better. The whole yeah. thing has really got to kick into full effect yet. Um, anyway, on that bombshell, let's uh, let's do let's talk about something cheerful, shall we? Cool. About your your growing up, and um, well, I think it was cheerful. I mean, you know, when you're young, I know your parents uh, um, split up, didn't they, when you were young? But yeah, I mean, yeah. the point is, you don't really think about it in those terms. Uh, you might look back and go, oh, maybe I, I, I suffered because of it. But I know so many people who grew up in, you know, single parent families, or you were looked after by your grandma, weren't you? I, think. I mean, it was quite, it was quite weird though, because when when I think about it now, um, you, you're like my analyst, aren't you? Well, this is online <laughs> analysis. I've been having, <laughs> I've been, I, I, I've been having therapy, so I'm, I'm kind of. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, no, yeah. I mean, I'd have to say that um, my mum and dad splitting up, because I was so young, I was three, mm. and my brother was literally almost one. So I may have been four, and he might have been almost one. So it was very early on. And we went to live with my grandmother, and my mother's always worked, always. So it didn't really bother me at all. No, of course to be that's with you, it was It more bothered me when um, my stepfather came along oh. because that was the bit that you had to get used to again. And you didn't want to share your mum, probably. No, exactly, yeah. And, you know, the um, he, he was quite a character, my stepdad, it has to be said. He had, uh, he had a job. He worked for a glass firm in Halifax or Huddersfield and they used to make the glass blowing machines for bottles yeah, and he yeah. used to get to travel all around the world fixing these machines. He was a, a proper glass engineer, and he'd been everywhere. And then I remember when um, I remember uh, one afternoon, uh, my mum and dad coming in when they'd got married, and we were back at <laughs> left us back at home, but they'd gone off and got married. So I must have been. I was probably about six then. Right. Something like that, and um, then he got a job in Jamaica. Yeah, I saw that in, in on Wikipedia. That's interesting. Yeah, and we moved to Jamaica from Odsall in Salford, which that felt must very being a right head fuck. Yeah, uh, to Jamaica. Now the interesting thing was he had such a great job that when we got to Jamaica, we had our own villa, and we wow. had servants. Now that's odd, isn't it? Oh man, it was unbelievable. So you're talking about a very sort of middle class or upper middle class way of living in Jamaica, which we enjoyed for three years, which was right. wild. I mean, I had a wild time as a kid, I bet. six to ten, and but my mother hated it. You see, um, and we got into all sorts of the normal trouble that um, couples. <laughs> get into I'll, I'll i'll spare you those details but anyway when his contract was up um he earned a lot of money and my mother insisted that we come back to salford so because otherwise wow, that's gonna be a culture Marley's. shock after that isn't it? oh yeah i mean i'd have been in bob marley's backing band wouldn't i ah. if if i hadn't with, with <laughs> dreads and dreads and everything yeah. so we came back to salford and sadly my um stepfather never forgave us um, for oh. dragging him back, he he like, had to get a normal job, and he hated it, and uh, he just became a real miserable old bloke. 
Oh. Which was, yeah, I mean, and I suppose I was 11, so we were just getting, you know, our kid would be eight and I was 11, so I was just getting to the obnoxious teenager uh, syndrome, which I did very well, I hasten. Yeah, well done. Congratulations. I was really good at that, yeah, <laughs> good at being a bastard. And, um, yeah, it was it was a shame. You know, it was a shame for him because of what he, he was before, but... Well, you know what? Love love makes us do ridiculous things, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah, exactly. Well, and um, so tell us about, uh, you know, where, how did you meet everybody with Joy Division? Let's move forward to that. Well, when uh, I went, when I came back from Jamaica, um, we, we were in a private school in Jamaica. And right. um, when I got there, my God, the teachers thought I was thick. Because their standard of um, literacy, shall we say, was so much higher than really? schools in Salford. And after three years of that, when I came back to school in Salford, I just walked it. Yeah, oh, of course. my God, it was unbelievable. It was fantastic. And I sat my 11 plus and sailed through it. And you I got, got to grammar, school, grammar right. school. Yeah. And uh, on the first day in Salford Grammar School, as I walked through the gates, I literally uh, bumped into Barney. Oh, really? When we were 11, yeah. And um, he, funnily enough, we, we, we had a weird history. My, the, there was only two of us from my school who got to secondary school, and there was a grammar school and a tech. So the cock of our school... Mm. called Dave Ward um, in Salford. He got to Salford Tech. And the Cocker Barney School, who was called Baz Benson, got to Salford Grammar. And they became literal enemies, <laughs> as, <laughs> as competing cocks are used to be. So I was Dave Ward's sort of sidekick, and Barney was Baz Benson's sidekick. So we were like the sidekicks. <laughs> we, we were, you know, it's nothing to do with me. Da, 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 and they were always... <laughs> Fucking either fighting each other or fighting oh, somebody, God. you know. So we we were able to stay on the on the fringes of the radar, right. I suppose you'd say in school. And you know the pecking orders, you know, you get bullied and you bully someone else. It's just a pecking order, isn't it? Yeah, of course. You, you do. So we knew each other very well uh, right. at school, and then um, I started knocking around with Barney. I mean, it was quite funny, really. I had a reunion with my old schoolmates not long ago, about just before lockdown. And it, it was really weird hearing them talk because, you know, they, they, they've grown up with me now and Barney. And uh, I tell you what, to a man, they all said that they, they didn't like him. Really? Yeah, which I'd never noticed, which was quite... Quite odd, and it actually quite surprised me. But really, I suppose, with the way that it's turned out, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have been that surprised. I've never met him, you know. Yeah, but but they they didn't tell me because I I used to, I mean I I had like two two sets of mates. I had my normal mates from school and my normal mates from um, who were pretty much the same people actually from Salford. Mm. Uh, and then I went out with Barney. Now, the reason I went round with Barney was because he was a great music fan, whereas the others didn't particularly. It was just pop. 
Right. So with Barney, I got to go and see Deep Purple. We went to see Led Zeppelin, Santana on our scooters. I've got a picture of my scooter here. Oh, please show us. Uh, Sorry, podcast listeners, you won't. Yeah, you can't see it, but my my scooter. He had Santana on his fly screen, and I had a Braxis on mine. Oh, I say. When we drove down the road together, it read Santana Abraxas, which of course was a fantastic. Oh, that's so sweet. That's how close we were. (laughs) (laughs) That's a proper bromance, they call it now. Definitely, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, it was through him that I had a musical friend, right? Same with me. Yeah, same with me and Philoki, actually. At our formative times, we we learned about music together anyway so and then we went to concerts together yeah and the others weren't interested you see so i had this kind of two two ways of life if you like and then of course when we started clubbing um i would go out with him clubbing whereas the others were very salford based right you know so it yeah it was weird I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I, I can think about it now, whereas at the time I never thought about it. it was just, no, of course you don't. It's well, just what happens. You know. I used to stay with Barney all weekend. I'd come on Friday night and I'd leave on Sunday night. And It must have been very um, upsetting to fall out. Well, I mean, we've fallen out all the time over the years. So that isn't, it, it wasn't, I mean, it was upsetting the first time. Because yeah. he split New Order up the first time to go off and do electronic. I mean, he, he really did. It was like being with a girlfriend when she says she wants to see other people. Uh, oh, open man. relationship. Oh, God. I remember we were, we were, we'd sold out this huge gig, Irvine Meadows in uh, California. And it was sold out, and it was like twelve or fifteen thousand people or something. It was, you know, big outdoor gig, fantastic gig actually. It was in a beautiful place in Irvine Meadows, uh, amphitheater, and um, we had a meeting. And I was thinking, why are we having a meeting just before the gig? You know, that's something you should never do because I mean, we were fighting like fuck about everything, really. You know, and I think that sadly, because of the hacienda and the way that factory turned out it didn't help our relationship you know you you were forever fighting <laughs> for survival yeah you no know? and you were never able to enjoy the music because there was always something that was fucking up the music like the hacienda fucked it up from 1981 we were always worried always having to divert all our money into it you know and it, it fucked everything up really and then factory did the same thing and then, of course, yeah. I mean, it's quite it's quite complicated. If anybody wants to read the New Order book, it's all in there. Yeah, but, I've read it. Yeah, yeah. So we 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 were having this meeting. Now um, we'd got to the bit separate limos. You know. Oh, oh, that. Oh, yeah, I get it. Okay. Separate yeah. limos. So we went there. Steve and Gillian went in one limo. By so you thought you were Fleetwood fucking Mac, right? Yes. Yeah. I think. I think it was, <laughs> it was that thing about you were together so much. Yeah. That, you know, being apart was actually quite attractive for a, a yeah. little bit of time. So anyway, we went to this hotel and all the lawyers were there from, you know, trying to save the Hacienda, trying to save Dry 201, the bar, and yeah. trying to save Factory. And we were sat there like with our head in our hands. And I remember he was sat on the windowsill, Barney. We were at the table. And um, 
he sort of blurted out during this fucking horrible business meeting that he wanted to work with other people. Uh, and I nearly fell off my chair. I was really shocked, you know. And um, anyway... Did you, did, you, did you feel... Uh, I'm sorry, it does sound like therapy this time. Yeah, yeah, not, not meant to be. How did you feel at the time? Anyway, should we work through this? Um, <laughs> did, did, you, did you feel betrayed? Yeah, absolutely betrayed, yeah. There's a lot of parallels with me and Phil here. Yeah, I mean, it was... It's, it really was the old knife in the heart. I mean, I knew that we were, you know, we, we, we there was a stormy relationship, shall we? Yeah. yeah. There were also very different um, ideas that we had for the group, for the music, but we'd always managed to get through it. Yeah. But that was like a real, this, this was a big. Dagger to the heart. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was the breakup, wasn't it? You know? And yeah. um, I remember getting back in the limo. And oh man, I was gagging for a drink <laughs> at that point. Oh man. And I was in this limo and we were stuck in loads of traffic. Literally, like the highway was four lines just full of traffic. And I'm in the back of this limo kicking off like a little child. Oh and I was going, What is this fucking traffic? Why is this fucking traffic out here in the middle of fucking nowhere? You know what I mean? What the fuck is going on? And this this driver, he turned around to me and he went, Man, he said, all these people are coming to see you. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Yeah, and he suddenly <laughs> hit you. What an arsehole you have been. Yeah, and it didn't make me feel better. No. Uh, and then that was the um, the seeds were sown then for New Order's first um, split, which I actually thought was a complete split funnily enough, and we all went off and did our own thing. And um, we had to reconvene to save the Hacienda and save Factory. And the only way we could do that was to make another record. Right. And making that record, I think, really split us just because oh. of the way it went through the recording process. Uh. Very unhappy. It, it wasn't unhappy making the record because me, Steve and Gillian, actually wrote nearly all the record hmm. and because Barney was busy with electronic and he kept saying, Oh, you carry on, you carry on and I'll come, you know, when I can. And he never did. And then we ended up at real world. Um, of course, the most expensive studio in Britain at that time. I think it probably still is actually. <laughs> we ended up in real world with all these tracks that we'd written waiting for him to do the vocals. Uh, and, I mean, I must admit, our relationship wasn't great. But as soon as we started working, he couldn't get a vocal line for any of our songs. So we had to start rewriting the music. Mm. Uh, and then we were watching all our ideas disappear, one by one, and you'd go in. He had a separate studio where he was working on the vocals. So we were recording the music in one with Stephen Haig, and he had a programmer. Um, in another studio, so I mean, it was just very divisive, and it was yeah. And you'd go in, and you'd go. Well, the vibe of a band is it? I mean, a band is meant to be us against the world, you know. Well, it is, but I mean, the thing is, it's not a unusual story, is it? You know, I mean, I'm reading mm. the biography of John Entwistle at the moment, and as I'm reading it, I'm swearing that I will never read another musical biography because they're all the same. 
Yeah. Every band album ends up having the same problems, you know, different names, same problems. And of course, to find out that the Who were just as bad as yeah. just as bad as I was, just as bad as I was like, oh, God, I'm definitely not. Well, you know, uh, uh, very early on in my production career, I decided never to work with bands because um, anything over three people, it's cliques. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And you, you spend more time doing the psychological thing than you do being creative. It's human nature, isn't it, really? Yeah. You know, the way. Yeah. Anyway. But there, so, there you go. So, um, uh, that's, that, no, it's fascinating. Um, so tell me about um, a bit more about the Hacienda. We kind of skated over <laughs> it. I mean, you know, I, I went to the Hacienda a few times and I fucking loved it, honestly. And also, going, and talking about the factory, we played there a couple of times and uh, I mean the, but the Hacienda was such a mad enterprise but it was I can't believe that it wasn't successful how, how did it fuck up so bad it was easy really because none of them knew what they were doing and when they say a fool and his money are soon parted right it is absolute truth and what happened was was that Rob and Tony were were very open people yeah. And as it turned out, quite honest. Now, in the club business, that, yeah. that is a rarity. <laughs> very bloody much. Bloody work. And they walked in like bloody, you know, dumb and dumber, and everyone took them for a <laughs> fucking ride. Oh, now, no. Yeah, I mean, they did. You know, the history, if if you read the Hacienda book. I've not read that. So yeah, it's okay. Forgive me. It's, it's actually detailed quite well how much advantage was taken of them now interestingly for rob and tony because of joy division's success they had a lot of money to play with so the thing is because they didn't know what they were doing if somebody came along with five yeah you know five magic beans yeah they'd go well how much do you want for him and they'd go oh well i want 10 grand and they go well that seems cheap i'll give you 15 <laughs> beans, aren't they? You know what I mean? And it, <laughs> that was Rob Gretton's attitude because Rob always used to say, if anybody ripped him off, you know, did a bad job and then sent a bill in, he'd always say to his secretary, he'd go, pay him more to make him look a cunt. And I'd say, I, I'm not sure about the logic of that, to be honest. No, and I'm not sure about it either. And he, I'd say, Rob, how does that make them look? A bastard, if you like, don't use that word. Um, if you pay him more, he said, it just does right, so shut it and just do that. And I was like, it was like tipping for bads. Yeah, it was, oh, really, it was a really strange attitude. So yeah. the thing is, is that they made loads of mistakes very early on because there was no, they weren't working with anybody who had experience. The only right. people they were working with were basically our road crew. So they brought all the friends in, you know, and oh, your friends are great at going out and getting pissed with you, but they're not great at running nightclubs when you're employing 70 people. Oh, my God. All right. Let, to your let, to your cost quite early. Yeah. Oh, my God. So nobody was controlling costs. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, Ben Kelly, the designer. Yeah, I know, I know Ben. I met yeah, him. he went 100% over budget. And Rob Gretton, insanely, actually liked that. Well, it must be great because it's cost this much money, look. And we were like, but, That's you know, not, I mean, but don't forget then I was on 
when the Hacienda opened, I think I was on 15 quid a week. And the Hacienda had cost 550,000 to build, of which we paid half. It was quite interesting because we paid half of our royalties to build it. And then factory used the other half of our royalties <laughs> to build their share, but didn't pay us the money that they owed us. So oh, in reality, we'd paid for it all. No, fact, well, hold on. Let's go back to factory then. So was there a problem? Um, look, forgive me if this has all been documented no, no, very well. No, no. I'm just, but um, to be honest, uh, the podcast listeners might not know this. So, um, so the, the, the factory, he's saying Tony Wilson's uh, accounting methods weren't, uh, you didn't get. No, he never, he never knew how much record, how many records Joy Division had sold. He literally what? just worked it out on the back of a fag packet. And when you needed money, you would go in and ask him and he would give you money. They, they never accounted as to, to us for years. What? Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting because you know when um, Jilty John the record, mm. you know Gordon the Moron, you know, yeah. Gordon is a yeah, yeah. Moron. No, I interviewed I interviewed uh, Graham. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When when the Gordon the Moron guy was quite a well known guy in Manchester, he was in the video and he was the mate of Graham Fellows. And I always remember every time we used to have a meeting about factory or you know some public thing or some launch or whatever, he always used to get so incensed with factory. Because he said, why does everybody say Factory is such a great record label? He said, they've only got one job, which is to pay their artists. And they can't even do that. That's not good. And Yeah, but I mean, it was, it was weird because, to be honest with you, the anarchy of it and the chaos actually appealed and fitted in with our Sex Pistols punk ethics that we'd begun with. Yeah, but you know what, Peter? It's like uh, we were signed to Fast Records. And Bob Last was a mate of Tony Wilson's. Lovely man, yeah. Uh, lovely, uh, great. And the label was great as well. Yeah. Do you know what? He was very much that kind of DIY thing. Idealist, but, yeah. Yeah, he's an idealist. But he was a DIY guy, but he used to send us handwritten accounts. <laughs> like, I've got I've got a, an image of one somewhere. I'll put it up online. Um uh, every every six months, and it was like something from fucking Samuel Pepys. Honestly, it was amazing. Um, he, and Tony Wilson was never like that. I remember being at a meeting with him when the Hacienda was in trouble, and they'd gone round Manchester and they'd got this great um, this club guru, you know, mm. who knew how to fix everything. Right, and uh, he came into the meeting. This guy this consultant and he sat there and he started to say right okay well your business model is set up wrong you need to do this and do this and tony wilson went whoa 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 whoa, whoa. he said whoa he said you are really fucking boring get out <laughs> now by this side we were half cut anyway with a crate of sapporo on the deck <laughs> So we thought it was funny. The guy really got upset and got kicked out. And Tony Wilson just went, well, thank God for that. What an arsehole he was. <laughs> <laughs> and so the idiots got back to running the asylum. Oh, my God. He just laughed at that. And it, so we were our own worst enemies. Yeah. Uh, the only time that we realised how silly we'd been was when we got investigated by the taxman. 
Right. And what happened was, was that um, in those days, I heard in some places, some establishments would pay some of their staff in cash. Right. And some of their staff on the books. Yeah. And what happened was you had two sets of books. Now, the average idiot that we were employing at the time, um, one of these said idiots was in the office. And the manager of the club said, right, we're having a PAYE inspection later. Right. Here's the two sets of books. Whatever you do, don't press the red button. <laughs> don't give them this set of books. <laughs> give them. I, this set got, I know what's coming next. <laughs> so the PAYE guy turns up, <laughs> says, Oh, hello. I've come to look at the books. The idiot goes and gives him the cash books. Oh. So he sits there and has like a eureka moment. And then they, he just went away and he came back the next day, busted us, um, brought a team in to go through all the books. Oh. And, uh, and then as a, as, a, as a consequence of that, they went through the books of the Hacienda, they went through Factory's books, they went through Joy Division's books, they went through... New Orders books. And as you could imagine, it was not anything like Samuel Pepys. It was like Little Bo Peep had written them. <laughs> and they just did us for over and oh, They were just like laughing. You could hear the laughter. <laughs> it was like milking a cow. Oh, my God. I remember the HMRC actually came to my house because they couldn't believe that we'd gone through so much money from our account and yet had nothing to show from it apart from this fucking huge cavernous space that was painted blue on Whitworth Street. So uh, these three HMRC people came to my house. I had to let them in, and they did an inventory of everything in my house. And it wasn't a lot, right? I did not have a lot in my house. And at the end of it, they said, right, Mr. Hook, we're, we're happy, we're satisfied now, we're, um, we're, we're leaving. And I went, well, thank God, you know, thinking, fuck off, no bed. And the guy stopped at the door and he turned around at me and he said, Peter, he said, where has all the money gone? <laughs> and I thought, and that, you know, when you say someone, you can hear an alarm bell ring. <laughs> and I was like, what are those bells? It was the start of my tinnitus. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God. And I, after that, it just all came down like a fucking pack of cards. Oh, no. And then we had this idiot of an accountant, and um, it, it seems that in life, the only thing that you can choose is not to meet the taxman. It's like a statute. If HMRC, yeah, yeah, decide to investigate you, you do not have to go in person. You can send your accountant. Oh, I know. that. Well, I've always had... I, I, I've always had a very straight accountancy thing. And because of that, it's like this weird relationship. They know if they, you know, if you, if you've got a straight accountant, they'll let you get away with stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But our okay. accountant never told us that. And he oh. sent us to the tax office on our own to meet the tax man. Oh, that wasn't very smart. You fucking say that again. And they were like good cop, bad cop. And then I remember one of them was Scotch and one of them was from Manchester. And the one from Manchester was quite meek and mild and he had all his papers lined up, proper OCD. 
Mm-hmm. And the other guy was like a big, tough Scottish cop. Oh, what were you doing in 1977, That was a pirate, wasn't it? I think. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. The, it, <laughs> it, it, as it turns out, he was a fucking pirate. He got all our buried treasure. <laughs> so he, we were sat there going, thinking, why the fuck are we here? And, of course, Rob, everything was directed at Rob because he was the manager. Yeah. And I remember the moment that... Um, we knew it was over was when the guy said can i get you a cup of tea so we all went yeah yeah tea yeah that'd be great tea yeah so he gets all this tea and we had like this ludicrous tea ceremony where they brought in a big tray full of china cups with a china big china teapot no biscuits HMRC cups. Yeah, and it was all laid out and poured out and literally the whole bleeding thing. It was about 20 minutes before you got a cup of tea. But this Scotch guy was pouring pouring it out and going, would you like milk, Mr. Gretton? He seemed to please <laughs> Rob out as first to get his tea. And it, uh, milk, yeah, milk, milk, <laughs> milk, milk, milk. And so anyway, he does this China teacup with the tea in with a little bit of milk and he passes it to Rob Gretton and he passed it across the table. And as Rob went to get it with both hands, his hands were shaking oh, wow. like that. And he gets the cup and he starts splashing the tea <laughs> all over the fucking place. And we were all looking at him like going, oh, no, no, no. So he gets the fucking tea, the sauce is full of fucking tea. He sits down and the, this Scotch tax man looked at the other tax man and he went, yeah, it's the classic poker tell, isn't it? Oh, oh my, my God. We just thought, oh, my God, we are fucked. And, of course, yeah, we were. Definitely, definitely fucked. We were fucked, absolutely <laughs> fucked. We got the biggest tax fine in English musical history. We were fined £995,000 oh in 1985. It took us 10 years to pay it off. And, of course, a tax fine isn't fucking tax deductible. So you've got – it was just a complete – yeah, it was It was just a nightmare, absolute nightmare. And still through it, we, we never stopped. And, you know, Tony Wilson actually turned around to me right at the end and said, you know what, you've got a lot to thank the Hacienda for. And I went, how do you fucking work that out? And he went, because it's kept you miserable, and because you were miserable, you've made great music. Oh, yeah, that's very Tony. It's the old Adele, isn't it? The old Adele theory. I don't know if you need that amount of misery, to be honest. Uh, maybe maybe £100,000 would have been enough misery. But um, anyway, that's a fantastic story, I have to say. Uh, well, it, it's... It... <laughs> now, don't um, recommend any group who might be listening to this podcast to go down that route. Well, all I can say is uh, it's not very ex- it's not very exciting having a financial controller for your business. No, but- it's the best money you're ever going to spend. Yeah, you see, I mean, it's it's interesting in those days, it was still where the manager knows best and the right. manager um, has, you know, because I, I remember I used to go to my accountant and say, you know, we're all skin. I couldn't pay my gas bill. And Blue Monday was the biggest selling 12-inch of all time. Oh Hacienda God. was rammed, acid house. You know, there was money pouring into it like a tsunami. And I still couldn't pay me fucking tax bill. And I was saying to our account, I said, why is this? 
why are we all skin? And he went, oh, Peter. He said, I don't want to tell you this, but we're not all skin. And I went, what do you mean? He said, well, you'll find that the one who holds the checkbook is never skin. Yes. And I was like, who holds the checkbook? So it was one of them. It's a, it was a harsh education. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's quite a I story. mean, it's quite standard rock and roll procedure. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, kind of dickheads like uh, Sting and people like that. Yeah, it. all fell for it. I mean, I was doing, a, you know, me and uh, I've got a, a, an EP out with Killing Joke. We did an EP together in 1993 right. and we'd lost it. It's called Killing Division. Um, we'd, we'd lost the tapes and they turned up about a year ago. All right. Okay. So we've actually released it, which is fantastic. So I was doing a, um, I was doing a podcast, funnily enough, with Jazz from Killing Joke. All right. And we were comparing contracts that we'd signed that last forever. <laughs> oh yeah, I've got. Listen, my publishing contract is in perpetuity. Yeah. I, I signed in 1978. Yeah. And somebody told you to sign it, presumably. Oh yeah. fucking last. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that, that was I've the got, standard then. That was the know, standard. I've got this wonderful game with my um, my lawyer, not my current lawyer, actually, my old lawyer. Um, he 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 would show me a piece of paper, right, and I would read it and go, "Oh my effing Christ, who would fucking sign <laughs> this? Uh, idiot!" And he'd turn it over and go, it's "You again, Peter." <laughs> Uh, because when you're 20, you'll sign out. You don't give but, a fuck. Uh, yeah, no, you just want to get on with it. You just want to get out of there. If, if I know. It's a bloody nasty piece of paper. Oh, but, so, yeah, oh, me and Jazz from Killing Joke were, uh, were, were, were reminiscing about deals that, um, that you know, you've signed forever and management deals you've signed forever oh. and all the rest of it. And, you know, it's like, it, it's amazing that we ever got to Blue Monday, never mind got as far as we did yeah yeah you, you do develop a kind of um a weird attitude don't you you know you, well, you, get, you know the you thing is good we, we emerged through the punk thing mm. we emerged into a scenario where it was very much that diy philosophy and you know and and fanzines and all that stuff and you know we we thought that you know we were driven like artists Really, and I used to think, God, we don't want to be poor like fucking artists. We, I, I mean, me and uh, Ian and and Glenn made an effort to try and understand the business side of things, so we didn't get stung like you guys did. But I kind of admire your chutzpah of, <laughs> of just going fuck it, all the money, pump it into something else. It's the classic. It's kind of like It's like psychedelic entrepreneurism. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what? I remember one fantastic night on the second birthday of the Hacienda and um, me and Barney had gone down to the second birthday party and we were walking around going, look at this fucking place, look at these twats, look what they've done to us and all this lot, you know, daddy, 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 I'm going to go fucking mad when I see so-and-so, I'm going to fucking kick some ass around here and all this lot. And we were both like, come on, let's go down there. So anyway, we're marching down and the manager of the club, we saw him and we marched up to him, ready to give him a fucking massive mouthful. And he went, oh, there's a load of free drinks in the dressing yeah, room. Yeah, yeah. So, and we went, free drinks, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> and of course... 
there's loads of you know fancy birds and all that. Yeah, but stuff. I, you know what? We were paying for the drinks anyway, so it was just, we just yeah. Uh, you that, that's, a bit like, that, that's a bit like your own album, you know. Yeah, you're going. Oh, we can go in the best studios and everything, and not even re- and turning a blind eye to the fact that you end up paying for the fucking thing anyway. Yes, without a doubt. So, you know, I mean, uh, thing is, is that as you know, Rob Gret. And he used to say to us, it's about the Hacienda in particular. He always used to say, listen, you can't fucking buy a legacy like this. And we would be going, well, listen, a legacy doesn't pay your fucking no, exactly. or put your kids to fucking school. Or bad no, exactly. But ironically, in a way, he was absolutely right. It, well, it's, it's lasted and it will last forever. So let's move on to the musical side of things then. <laughs> so... Um, and do you know? I don't know. I never thought that story would be so so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's good that you've taken it in good heart. Anyway, um, right. I'm going to say. Right, I know for a fact that uh, that um, the bands that you've been in would not have existed were it not for for your talent. Right you. now, I do spend. A couple of minutes normally blowing smoke up the arse of the people I interview. Uh, but I genuinely believe that because, you know, I've just, in preparation for this, I've been listening to you. You did, or somebody did an article about your best 10, 10 best songs. And I think you could probably, even if you had nothing to do with this, actually, it's like, like you've written it because it's like going, one of the, one of rock and rolls, oh, I've written it down actually, one of the greatest bassists rock and roll has ever seen. Right, this guy wrote, and um, and but what I th- what really impressed me was firstly how beautiful and melodical or what he did was, secondly how similar it was a lot of the bass lines you were playing before the electronic thing was like almost like programmed bass lines, yeah, in a way, yeah, nice uh, but I mean like 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 a sequence, you know. Um, because of the 16s nature of what you're doing, the eights nature, and the yeah, the driving, the driving nature of it, mm. and uh, I put I, I wrote this. You'll like this oh. Mo- motor powered elegance, <laughs> but it is though. I'm going to have it on a t-shirt. Yeah, no, motor powered elegance. There's only one Peter Hook. Yeah, that's very um, kind of you. Yeah, um, but what I think is that that there's no. There's no there's no core to the song essentially unless unless your your improvisation and your melodies are weaving through it. So what's really happening if you reduce a lot of the songs that you play on down to I don't know if it's playing being played on a string quartet or something or an octet, mm-hmm. you know you would be the uh, the you'd be like the the contrapuntal part played on a cello or something and it's it's so beautiful a lot of the songs they it's not just the sound of your bass and i love that thing about you had to play it high up on the fretboard because you couldn't fucking hear anything that's true because barney was played so loud and then um but anyway so um and that's true yeah yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah, he, and so tell. He was okay. very lucky in that he got a Vox UD30. If anybody ever Google's a Vox right. UD30, they're the ones the Beatles used to use. Okay. But they there was very few of them made, and the uh, the mass the mass uh, the most Voxes made were of the UD15, which was a completely different 
amplifier, which wasn't as loud. The Vox UD30 was something like, God, I think it was 250 watts. RMS, it was a real, and what a sound. It was absolutely amazing. He stumbled across it, paid 100 and odd quid for it. I think they're worth about 10, 15 grand now, if you can find them. And it was an amazing sounding amplifier. It really was. And it dwarfed everything we had. My, uh, I remember when I bought the guitar and I went in and, you know, history tells it, I, I didn't know what a bass guitar was when I went to buy one. Barney told me to get a bass because he had a guitar because we were emulating the Sex Pistols. (laughs) This was why I have to thank you for putting me with Glenn Matlock. All right. Glenn Matlock was my – without him, I wouldn't be talking to you now. Is that right? Absolutely right, yeah. I mean, without him writing the Sex Pistols music, I wouldn't be here because I went to see Glenn play with the Sex Pistols and I was so inspired that we walked out and formed a band and I went and bought a bass guitar the next day. And the guy said to me, um, well, which bass guitar do you want? And I went, I just want a bass guitar. Mm. And he said, do you know what a bass guitar is? And I went, no. <laughs> and he went, well, what about this one? And he pulled one off the wall and I, I, he said, it's only got four strings, you know. And I thought, oh, that's good. Because Barney's had six. <laughs> but this would be easier to play. <laughs> No. And uh, I'd borrowed 35 quid off my mum. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever pay it back? Eh? Yeah, 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 yeah. She made me pay it back. She was very good at <laughs> that. And he, he said it's 32 quid. And I thought, oh, brilliant. 32 quid, yeah, I'll have it. So he gave it me. And he said, do you want a case? And I said, how much are the cases? And he said, well, a case is three quid. Oh. And I was like, oh, she said, I have to walk home. And walking home from me from Manchester Piccadilly to Little Holton would have taken me three, four hours. Oh, my God. Shit. I said, no, I can't afford it because I've got to get the bus home. And he went, all right. He said, I'll get you a black bin liner. And I went, oh, black bin liner. (laughs) (laughs) So I went home with the base stuck in the black (laughs) bin liner with the head out. And, oh, my God, what a surreal trip that was for me on the bus going to Little Alton, the 308, I think it was, whatever, and sat there looking at this thing that I'd never played, never touched. I had no idea what it was, what it could do. And I remember getting home and um, showing it to my parents, you know, like I got my O-levels. <laughs> and my dad said, what the bloody hell are you going to do with that, you bloody idiot? Uh, and I was like, fuck. I was like, what am I going to do with it? So I was like, that, yeah, shit, that's the point. So anyway, the next day, I went down to Barney's with my guitar, and he had his guitar, and he was about as competent as I was on the guitar, right. which was, wasn't saying much. And we, he was very good at soldering and crap like that, and he soldered our two guitars up to his grand's, this was before he got the amp, to his grand's radiogram. Uh, he took the needle off, you know, the head of the needle that, yeah. that played the record. He took that off and connected our jack plugs that we butchered to the wires of the the um, the arm. And then we played our first music through his grand's radio player. That's so great. And then we blew it up. 
because it was yeah. Well, I didn't think that was going to last. That wasn't going to end well, was it? I remember being both of us holding our guitars and being chased down the street in Broughton by his irate grandmother with a rolling pin because we'd ruined her. Um, oh my god! And then so so, how did he get the money for the? Uh... For the amps, then? Well, I mean, what happened was was that I realised I needed an amp. Barney says, you need an amp, and I need an amp. And we'd got a little practice amp, but we only had one one jack plug in. Right. Um, and, you know, it, it was just, we, we thought, I've got to get an amp. So I went and convinced my mother to buy me an amp, and she bought me a Sound City 120 on HP, as it was called then, higher mm. purchase. Uh, and it was expensive. It was like 110 quid. It was Fucking fortune in 1970s. A lot, that's a lot of money. Then, yeah. And I, you know, the, the guy in the shop said, yeah, is, what, what about this one? He must have been trying to get rid of this dud, you know, behind the counter probably all year. And I walked in green, as you like, and said, oh, I need an amp. And he went, here's one, bung. <laughs> He'd fill out the HP form. My mother did it for me. Oh, she, was, she wasn't happy. So i get it home, and I've got this big Sound City 120. It was like a Marshall hundred watt head and i put it down connect my guitar in it plug it in and i'm like this fucking thing's not working you know i'm fucking banging it and there's nothing coming out and i thought shit so i phoned up a1 on oxford road and i said you've just sold me this amp and it's not working and he went oh was it the sound city 120 and i said yeah yeah it's not working i'm plugging my guitar in, nothing coming out of it he said Peter, he said, you need some speakers, you know. Because <laughs> like, oh, there's no internet. To <laughs> I thought, speakers. And I thought, oh, shit. Suddenly, suddenly the Hacienda all makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> then I had to wait for speakers. And uh, I found an advert in the Manchester Evening News because I used to read the Evening News. I always have done all my life. I still do it now, actually. Every day I read the Evening News. And I used to read all the adverts because there was a lot of adverts then, pre-internet. And uh, there was a bass speaker. Bass speaker for sale. It was a 1B18, um, 100 watt, uh, 10 quid. And I thought, 10 quid. So I had to go back to my mother, get 10 quid off her. And then I went down to buy this bass speaker. It was in Salford, funnily enough. It was near my old school. And I went in, knocked on the door, and I went, uh, uh, and then the door opened. And it was my old art teacher. No. Yeah, he was called Dickon Hubbard. Lovely guy. Sorry, uh, what was the first name? Dickon. Dickon? Dickon. D-I-C-K-O-N. Really mm -hmm. unusual really? name. Dickon Hubbard. And he said to me, oh, he said, Peter. He said, it's you. And I went, oh. I said, hello, <laughs> sir. He said, Peter, you left school five years ago. You don't have to call me sir now. <laughs> so like you always do. And he, so he gave me this bass speaker, uh, 10 quid, shoved it in the back of my car, and it sounded like shit. The oh. Sound City 120 was shit. The guitar was shit. The bass speaker was shit. And in between this, Barney had gone to A1, found this Vox, and this Vox sounded like a choir of God's angels. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I was like, that's shit. So the only way I could hear it, bass, was to play high up, and it came out, and it sang. And Ian Curtis would go, whoa, 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 that sounds great. That's, when you do that, that sounds great. And I go, oh, whoa. And then, of course, we started writing them and it was, you know, she's lost control. Yeah, yeah. Right. I don't know. I, I mean, do you know of anyone, 
I mean, there must be bass players who have been influenced by your style, but I can't remember hearing anyone before you that played in that style. No, not chordal, because no. a lot of it is chord and a lot of open strings. And But, I mean, God bless Ian Curtis. Every single time we started to play, he <laughs> would we'd start jamming and Barney would be going, well, can't you just follow the guitar? Yeah. And I'd be going, no, I can't follow the fucking guitar. Follow your own guitar. <laughs> um, and Ian would go, play high, okay, play high. Sounds great when you play high. And so I'd play high and he'd go, Steve, Steve, do them jungle drums. Jungle drums, Steve. High bass. Barney, play your guitar. And, you know, we were so prolific. It was unbelievable. We we would we would practice for an hour on Wednesday night, yeah, and two hours on Sunday afternoon. That was because that was all we could afford. Really, I'm fifty an hour. We used to have to chip in to um, to do it, and without a shadow of a doubt, I can safely say here on my children's lives, run for it, kids. <laughs> we would write a song every time we practiced. It's amazing, isn't it? When Unbelievable. You get into, when we you get so into the flow. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we very quickly went from being punky, you know, aping the punks, yeah. to actually writing songs. And Unknown Pleasures was mostly written in 1978, even though it didn't come out till 1979. Um, yeah, the songs just came thick and fast. We improved. As Ian... You know, he'd bring a record because I remember me and Barney were getting a bit annoyed because everyone was comparing us to the doors. And I was saying to Barney, I said, Who are the fucking doors? <laughs> where, where the fuck are the doors from? Are they from Birmingham or something? I was like, What, what are you at? And he'd go, I don't know. I haven't got a fucking clue. And then Ian would go, Oh, what's a fucking perception, mate? Yeah, I know the Doors, he'd say, and he'd bring us a Doors record and say, oh, they're from L.A., and we were like, whoa. And we'd it's, put only, doors... it's only because of Ian's voice, though, isn't it? That's, uh, the, the music wasn't the same at all. Well, yeah. it, when when you put the Doors on, you could hear. Yeah, I, I thought I could hear it because we actually went through a phase of playing Riders on the Storm. Oh, that I'd like. Uh, is that recorded? Was that recorded? No, it was never recorded. Oh, my God. Have you not got a copy of that? No. no. And we oh, would play Riders on the Storm. At the factory, we played it twice when we gigged at the factory. Did it have like and a no one noticed. Did it have like a pumping bass line? It, it had like a Joy Division-esque bass line, yeah. We changed it, but it was Riders on the Storm. Doom, 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 right. doom. Oh, it's perfect for you guys. Yeah, yeah. And but nobody noticed it wasn't it wasn't it was the hey, I'll tell you what, here's here's an idea. Because um, various people I've been interviewing, I've been thinking about doing another BF album. You should be on my next BF album. We'll do a cover. I would love that. Thank you, and I'll hold you to that. Yeah, we'll do riders. We'll, on do, an like, we'll do an electronic version. You can write. You can do the programming for mm -hmm. the bass, cool. and you can sing it. Yeah, thank fantastic. You. Man. I look forward to that. And yeah. you're actually fulfilling a little bit of history because we did never actually record it. Wow. So, yeah. So anyway, the, my my point was was that Ian was bringing us these records, Can, Faust, Craftwork, yeah. Velvet Underground, All Piggy Pop, yeah. Doors, and me and Barney were like going, whoa, this, it was like a musical avalanche. And it was quite funny, really, because we used to go up to his house because we had, uh, I had a scooter, Barney had a motorbike, and then I got a car. We would drive up to Ian's 
and go and sit and listen to this music like you do when you're a kid. Yeah, yeah. You don't do it when you're older, do you? You know, but you do it when you're a kid. And uh, we would go to his house, 77 Barton Street, and just sit in his little writing room because the house was a peculiar shape. It wasn't um, like the way houses are like that. It was like that. Okay. It came to a point almost, and his little room, room where he would um, do the words and everything was on the front of the house it was like a little sitting room and I was doing a session yesterday with Melanie Williams and Joe Roberts you know of Ain't No Love Ain't oh, No Love Shut up oh you know I work with them oh right oh there you go I, I, I worked with them 15 years ago more 20 years ago oh have I missed it again no, you oh right I've got a haircut in 20 minutes oh shit right oh it's not that uh, 10 minutes and as you can see all oh, right, shit. Okay, you need it, yeah. I need um, it. <laughs> There's my wife. Send Joe and Melanie my love. Yeah, I will do. Hiya. This is my wife, Becky. Hi, Ed, darling. Hi. How are you? Martin. Hi, thank you. Be here. Uh, ah, yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. where I disappeared to be with him. Ah, I see. Uh, <laughs> he's not got a fancy woman. It's all right. He's, he's the other woman. I see. <laughs> um, right. where, where was I then? Yeah, so I was doing a, a session with Melanie and Joe, and oh, uh, I got a little bit lost. And I ended up on bloody outside Ian's house. Would you believe it? 77 Barton Street. I, it was so weird. So weird to be talking about it now when I stumbled across it. Well, yeah, I mean, I know where it is. It's just that I didn't know where it is in relation to their house. And I oh. got lost on the back streets in Macclesfield. And now, now the dog's come to say hello. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, they're all coming in, mate. Uh, yeah, so it was quite weird how these things happen. But, yeah, I mean, Ian, I have to say, was my he, – he taught me music. Yeah, he's – Proper he, music. I, I've read your book, and I, it's obvious how much – It know. was – yeah, me and Barney were very heavy metal. Yeah. You know, as he was, he was a, a true kind of creator, artist type, yeah. Yeah. Um, right, because we've got so little time, uh, I'm going to tell you that you you are one of only about four people I've said this to, that uh, if possible, it'd be fantastic to have a part two later in the year. Part two would be an absolute... Uh, because we're not really... We've not really got far, have we? No, but I just... Mm. You know, there's it's loads epic. of... It's more. epic. It's, it's podcast gold, all of this. Well, there's there's a lot more stories. There's, there. a, lot, there's a lot more stuff. And I think we haven't even got to Acid House yet. No! Oh, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, there's oh. plenty of stories there. So uh, I do this smash hits thing with everyone where I ask them their favourite X, right? So, um, I'll, and, he, and we don't have to go into any depth, just we can do short answers. So, what's your favourite film? Favourite film was Mad Max for what? a long, long time. Yeah. Um, and what's my favourite film now that's moved on? Quadrophenia, actually. I actually bought a Quadrophenia poster. Really? Quadrophenia yeah. is my one of my old. I mean, I was a scooter boy. Oh I yeah, and uh, I loved the music. And Quadrophenia is one of my favourite albums. That's what broke my heart about reading that bloody who, you know, yeah. who story. Uh, uh -huh. But yeah, Quadrophenia is a fantastic album. I must have actually ripped off Quadrophenia a lot as my really? though, funnily enough. We couldn't. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, we couldn't do it as um, New Order. Favorite. What's your favourite book? My favourite book is um, Tender is the Night. Oh, I don't know that one. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, and, fancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's the only book I've ever read more than once. I've is it? Two or three times. Uh, that book inspired the baseline to Leave Me Alone, 
by New Order. Is that right? And there's a song called Tender is the Night by Monaco. That's how much that book. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's funny, I've tried other F. Scott Fitzgerald books and they've never had any impact on me at all. Great Gatsby is the, you know, the most well-known one. But yeah, yeah, Tender is the Night is my favourite book. Okay, favourite TV show, old or new? Oh, wow. Now, that's an interesting one. My favourite TV show at the moment is uh, Seal Team. <laughs> Four in a bed. Which is actually <laughs> very good Seal Team. Seal uh, team. But my other joint favorite, Walking Dead. Walking Dead. Oh, yeah, it's good to walk in Zombies. Um, okay, moment yeah, that changed yeah. you forever or epiphanal moment, you know, kind of my turning point. See. It's easy when the Sex Pistols started playing. That right. moment they started playing, both Barney and I, our jaws dropped. Right. And it was like somebody had opened a door in a darkened room and I saw really? the way out. Yeah. And I didn't understand it. And by no. God, if some of the stories I've told you, you'd, you'd wonder whether I'd shut that door now, wouldn't you? <laughs> but, yeah, the, it did. It literally did. And, you know, from that concert, we watched and couldn't believe that a band would tell everybody to fuck off. Yes, and yes. And thought, God, I could do that. I could tell everyone to fuck off. Yeah. And, yeah, we formed a band there and then, and our lives were never the same. We have never... Yeah. And I've got ironically, all my mates are still there. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a similar kind of uh, epiphanal moment. It was when when um, me and some members of the cabs, Cabaret Voltaire, and uh, various other pl- people yeah, volunteered yeah. volunteer to support the drones. Remember the oh, drones? Yes, very much. They were horrible. And um, we were so terrible that, that their manager came on in the middle of our last number and told us to get off the stage. But I would have said that was perfect. And then they came on and we said... They are so they are so terrible, they were all and it made it gave us the confidence to go on to yeah, go. Good, we Look can what do. You've achieved bloody. Well, exactly. That's what I'm there, man. They they are so underrated. It isn't funny, is it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, ambition unfulfilled. Ambition unfulfilled. My God, you know, um, I've been very lucky in that. I I must say that I've got everything that I wanted. The only thing that I haven't got is probably the respect of my former band, <laughs> um, which is, isn't really an ambition because that is their their fault. Oh, that's sad. But no, I always wanted to work in a scrapyard. Cars. Well, there's cars, still scrapyard. time. There's yeah. still time. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I could buy one now. <laughs> Not very cheap. Very yeah. really expensive. Are these a, a field full of shit cars? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, other musical artist or composer. Uh, my favourite one that I was supposed to be working with was Iggy Pop. Oh, I worked with a French band called the Liminanas, and we've done two singles together, which did really well. They were really, really good. And um, the third one, they had Iggy Pop singing, and I was so delighted because Iggy, yeah. all-time hero, and COVID um, killed him. Oh, what a so, funnily enough, I've got a note in my uh, book. Right, okay. All right, okay. Okay, favourite synth. Favourite synth. Favourite synth. Bloody hell. God. It'd be the Moog Sauce. Do you know, I've done 23 of these so... No, I've done 30 or so of these. No, Not one person has said the same synth. Isn't that interesting? Oh, fat. 
I loved yeah. it. When yeah. Barney used to program it, the one with the proper yeah. futuristic top, it was <laughs> a great sound. My okay, friend. man, I'm going to leave you to your family life. Thank you. I'm going to get my hair. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be like you when I come back. Need to get your fucking hair cut. I know, I know. I'll be like you when I come back. I'll send you a pic. <laughs> Part two, but your way. It's uh, I, I love you, man, and you we'll, we will yourself. definitely do part two later this right, year. Well, and I'm gonna have a lovely weekend. Have a lovely right. weekend. Okay, man. Bye. Well, there he was. That's Hooky. We didn't get halfway down my sheet of notes, I'm afraid, because <laughs> uh, I was too busy laughing. Uh, did try and drive the uh, the conversation along a little bit, but um, it, you know, he's just such a great raconteur that I didn't want to interrupt him. So uh, forgive me. We will have to do part two. Is another one of those on the list to do part two later in the year. And I really like the BF idea I came up with there, and we'll um, we'll definitely put that together. And it's kind of like an unfulfilled ambition. Um, and I think it would make him happy because I think because he performed it with Ian Curtis, um, it would be kind of uh, completing the circle for him a little bit. And I think it would be a, a, a nice gesture. So I'm going to help him do that. Uh, we'll record it and um, hopefully play it live the next time we ever get commissioned to do a, a BEF gig again, um, which I hope will be soon. Some more emails. Hey Martin, first of all, thanks for the great podcast. I've only listened to the first few episodes so far and they've been a blast. And looking at the already released episodes, there is an amazing backlog of episodes waiting for me. Thank you. I thought it would be interesting to get a Daniel Miller of Mute on your show. Well, I've done him, haven't I? Not paying attention, not paying attention. Okay, that was from Miko Honkinen. Gotta love that name. Um, Klaus Laufenberg. You think I'm making these names up, don't you? Hi, Martin. Thoroughly enjoy your podcast. If you've already said it yourself, try and get Addie Newton on. Done that. Coming out soon. Jason Older. Hi, Martin. I've been listening to your podcast on my two-hour journey to work every day, and I'm loving it. Been a fan of all your work and followed you since the 80s. Oh, you were the one who put the restraining order on. I've just listened to your Thomas Dolby show, and at the end of one, have you listeners suggested you interview Tara Bush? I can help you with contact. I don't know who Tara Bush is. Good luck with the podcast. Jason. Thank you. Carl Edwards. Thanks for the podcasts, which I've enjoyed listening to over the past weeks. I heard someone ask if you'd talk about Billy McKenzie, and I definitely second this request. There's a lot of love for Billy after all this time. I also wondered if you consider Billy Ray Martin. I know Billy Ray. She wanted me to work on some stuff in the past. <clears throat> She's released many different and interesting records since her time with Lake Tribe 101. Also think hardcore music is still sounds as fresh as when I, it was first released. So how about Clive Pierce, Robert Duran, or Hugh Ashton? I have no idea who those people are. Um, I think you also mentioned a show on new music, which I am planning to do at some point. Here's a few suggestions: one, fragrance; two, Eurotropic; three, linear aspera; 
Four, Marshaux. Five, Nina. Six, Men Without Country. Man Without Country. I've only heard of um, Marshaux out of those. Thank you, Carl. Um, Robert Stanley from Berlin. Uh, I have had a lot of fun absorbing your podcast today. Firstly with Morris um, Hayes, that is, and now with Rasheen Murphy. One person who I truly love from Sheffield who's given me much, so much love for music production is Richard Barrett, a.k.a. DJ Parrot, and his work with Richard H. Kirk, a sweet exorcist, to today's crooked man with Rasheen too. His parties are supposedly of legend with Winston as Jive Turkey. This is all in code. Um, yeah, we tried to bring him to our Chicago-influenced house parties in Berlin, but he told me he hates it today. Ha ha ha. I truly see him as a legendary Sheffield artist. Saw him DJing at the Republic in the mid-90s. And I'm sure he has loads to talk about to boot. I think DJ Parrot's brilliant and nobody's got a bad word to say about him. His work recently with Rasheen has been completely incredible. Um, please send me your suggestions for guests, for sections, um, people that you admire in the music industry. Um, I, I, I do take on board all your suggestions. I read every email and I try and read out as many as I can on the podcasts. Uh, one thing I would appeal for, um, I am going to do at some point in the future um, uh, an episode dedicated to new artists because I think it's important to encourage that. Uh, but unless it's that, I've got to, uh, because I'm trying to get sponsorship, just to remind you, anybody who's interested, uh, for the podcast to help me with the cost of it and to keep it going, um, I'm trying to keep the viewing figures up. So um, I'm getting some amazing guests, and I've had some big success in the podcast charts so far. I was number uh, four at one point with the Gary Newman episode, and I'm pretty confident the current Tony Bisconti one that I'm looking at today is going to do very well. Um, but I can't, unfortunately... Um, fit in people who are completely unknown or very little known, however good they are, because uh, the you know I can't afford to let the viewing figures fall too much until I've got some sponsorship on board. So and I've already got like twenty uh, that I've recorded, which are not uh, I've not put out yet. That are of a very high and popular standard. So. Uh, yeah, appeals for interesting people, and uh, I do take them all on board. Um, I've got some really exciting people coming up. You're going to love it. Um, I put my heart and soul into this. In return, I don't demand money. Uh, all I would ask from you is that you uh, send me some encouragement occasionally on email, but preferably, well, no, in addition, if you could leave a review... Uh, on on whichever podcast you do, uh, podcast distributor. If you could leave a good review, that would be really useful because it encourages other people to uh, to listen to it. And I want to spread these as far as possible. Um, and secondly, please tell people by word of mouth. You know, 
You don't have to leave a review if you don't want to. But please recommend it to other people and and also share the podcast to other people. Um, yeah, any comments? Good, bad, indifferent? Uh, preferably not indifferent and preferably not bad. Um, electronically yours... No, not... Start again. Electronically Martin with a Y at gmail.com. Uh, I will read your email out and please try and keep them concise. I can't read out long emails. There's just not enough time. Thank you very much. Looking forward to entertaining you further. I will speak to you soon. Bye. Wow.